Well, we've been uh, talking about phrases as we work our way through the journey of Christ to the cross. And this phrase today, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? That needs to be framed in. Every now and then you need to do that. I apologize if these next few moments seem to some of you a little confusing, but there's quite a difference for me. I have found in my journey with Christ that two things are true at the same time. They overlap. They sound alike, but they are really quite different. One of those is that Christ is in me. And the other is that I am in Christ. Now, I know that sounds like the the same phrase said a little differently, but if you think about it, they're really two different things. When Christ is in me, I am thinking about the resources of Christ, his power, his love, his discernment, his compassion, his mercy, his vision. And I'm asking myself, how do I use the resources that are in Christ in my own life today? I have a job. I have a family. I'm in a situation, sometimes a dilemma. How do I find in Christ those resources and then draw them into my situation? But when I ask myself, how am I in Christ? I start with his story, not mine. I believe that there is no other story except the story of Christ. So rather than asking myself, how do I find in him resources for my situation, I ask myself, how do I find myself in his story? Because what's happening to him is probably happening to me, or it will soon enough. So I read his story as if it were my own story. And I try to participate in what is happening in his story so that later I can imitate it in a situation in my life. But one more time, they seem to me like different questions. Both of them are true. Christ is in me. Paul said, if Christ is in you, in Romans chapter 8, then your body is dead because of sin, but his spirit alive because of righteousness. Paul said, I pray that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. He said, I labor until Christ is fully formed in you. Do you hear the language? There is a sense in which Christ is in me and I may use his resources. But it is also true that I am in Christ and that is my identity. Paul said, do you not know that those of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Do you hear the language? So that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we too may walk in the newness of life. You hear it? So Paul said, remember, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ's in God.
And someday, when Christ, wait for it, who is your life, is revealed. On that day, you also will be revealed right with him in glory. Do you hear the language? Steve, you do not have your own life. Not anymore. You died. The only life you have now is rooted in him. Now, the reason I point out these differences is because there are times in my life when I need one, times when I need the other. I'll open the Bible, and I need to start with Christ's resources and say, how do I pull them into my life? Then there are other times when I need to find out what's happening in his life, and I need to get into it. The passage that we're reading today is one of those times. It's the second way to read the Scripture. I'm not going to ask myself today, how do I apply this to my life? That comes second. The question I'm asking today is what is happening in his, because that really is the only thing happening. And then soon enough, it shall be clear what's happening in mine. So what's happening in his is that he has come to a deciding point. Some of you look to the front and you see an altar. I see a fork in the road. I see him say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It is for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I see a fork in the road. In Jesus' mind, it's all about the hour. Something you don't know when you're younger, you learn as you get older, is that your life is not one continuous stream of actions. As you get older, you can look back and you start to notice there were knots in the timeline of your life. There were moments, defining moments, where the options were clear and you had a decision to make and that you chose one decision instead of the other started to define the rest of your life. That moment is not always self-evident. It never introduces itself. It never says, well, this is the hour. You better get this right. You always see it later. But looking back, you can tell I was at a fork in the road. I could have went one way or I could have went the other. There weren't four or five different options. By this time, they had weeded themselves out. There was only two. It was either this or it was that. And I chose that. And because of that, the rest of my life has been what it is. Like I say, you can't see this when you're in it. And you probably can't see it when you're younger. You'll have to take my word for it. When you turn around and look, there are defining moments. Little Chapel 
Hastings, Michigan, while the preacher's talking. And I was goofing around. And suddenly in the middle of a sermon I cared nothing about, something captivated my mind. I couldn't get away from it. I spent the next hour or two wrestling. I made a decision. And while that decision or that day means very little to you, I remember it to this day. I was at a fork in the road. If I'd have went one way, my life would have gone like that. If I went this way, it would have went like this. I was uh, graduating from Indiana Wesleyan University in 1865, and uh, I just fresh out of college, and I was trying to find a job. I couldn't find a job. All my classmates were getting hired in these churches, some glorious jobs. I wanted all of them. I was getting none of them. I wanted to be a youth pastor. Can you believe that? Boy, now there's the kiss of death, if you're talking about me anyway. I mean, the good side is that I'd have taken them youth, all three of them, a foot deeper. But there'd have been only three by the time I was done. So I was in the living room with my girlfriend, later became my wife. The options were that I would either keep looking or I would take this call from a church with 21 people, 15 on social security, not that I was counting. We went on our knees in the living room. And by the end of an hour, I was sobbing. Almost never, never get carried away like that emotionally. But I knew in that moment what God wanted, and I hated it. As we got off of our knees, I had a decision to make. You stay in the market and wait for something else to open, or do you take the thing that God has put in front of you, whether you like it or not? Now I can turn around and look back, and I realize that was an hour in my life. I didn't see it. When you're younger, you keep thinking you can do whatever you want. There will be a lot of makeovers, do-overs. You don't realize once you make some decisions, they start making you, and they pull you in one of two directions. So I've noticed as I look back in my life that these critical hours that I've come to are always hard. They always feel heavy. I always feel like I'm not prepared. I very seldom like the options. Sometimes I even hate the thing I know I am supposed to do. But I've come to a fork in the road. Do some of you know what I'm talking about? I believe every individual, every family has an hour. They don't always know it when they're in it. A good counselor, good friends can identify that moment and say, you don't see it, do you? But a lot is riding on the next few weeks of your life. You must get this right. 
Sometimes I think organizations, businesses, even churches have hours. They don't realize it, but suddenly they creep up on you. All of the biases and the prejudices and the assumptions that are within the organization are suddenly laid bare so everyone can see them and you have just a few days to reconsider your deepest assumptions. You better get this right. You better get this right. Because you will go one way or you will go another. Nations, cities, the world has hours where they decide the future in a few moments. Only looking back do we realize how critical they were. Are you still with me? I believe if you've not had an hour, oh man, one is coming. Can we get back to Jesus' life? Thank you. John chapter 2. Here's how I read it. Starting back in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And when he does it, his disciples put their faith in him for the first time. Jesus is becoming popular. But a few verses later, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he sees people exchanging money at the tables and he tips the tables over and says, you'll not turn my father's house into a marketplace. And suddenly the Jews approach him and say, we demand you tell us by what authority you just wrecked our temple. So already in John chapter 2, Jesus is gaining popularity, but Jesus is a controversial figure. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 3, Nicodemus has to sneak out at night in order to find him because he knows full well the political ramifications of finding a man that controversial in broad daylight. In John chapter 5, Jesus sees a man laying by the pool. Been there for 38 years. He's crippled and he cannot move. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And the guy pops up and he starts to walk. And Jesus is popular with everyone that is looking. The problem is that he did it on the Sabbath, and he ticked the religious establishment off. In John chapter 6, the same thing is true. Jesus feeds 5,000 men with a few fish and loaves, more than 20,000 when their families are included. So he is becoming wildly popular in John chapter 6. But by the end of John 6, he starts saying crazy things like we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood or we don't have his life in us. And so while Jesus is wildly popular with the crowd, some of his own followers are leaving him at the end of John chapter 6. In John chapter 7, Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's an amazing event. He starts talking from the gut. Smart people, I know a lot of them, they are always 
quoting other people. Jesus never did that. He just talked from the gut like he had his own relationship with God. He didn't need to borrow some footnote. He just said, I've been with him and I know his nature and this is how he thinks. And the people were amazed at the Feast of Tabernacles. But by John chapter 8, the Pharisees have noticed this. His popularity, I mean, and they've already dispatched guards to arrest him. So once more, Jesus is gaining popularity, but Jesus is a controversial figure. By the time we get to John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that really is the synchronon of everything he does. I mean, you don't see dead people walking every other day. And while people have been there for four days to mourn the death of Lazarus, Jesus, just in a few moments, stands in between the living and the dead. Standing in the midst of the living, he speaks to the dead, and the dead hear him. He says, Lazarus, get up and walk, and Lazarus comes walking. He is wildly popular now. But the Pharisees have had it. They start plotting how they're going to kill him. The priest has already said it's better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation die with the Romans. We have to find this man, arrest this man, and kill this man. They're even thinking about killing Lazarus. How do you kill somebody who was already dead? What are you going to do, dead him? He was dead. You don't have any more weapons, man. What you're going to do to him, he just walked out of. So you see, Jesus' popularity is gaining. Jesus' controversy is getting thicker and thicker until you get to John chapter 12. All through the last 11 chapters, Jesus has carefully negotiated his relationship with people. He was able to withdraw to avoid them when he needed to. When they came to make him king, he went out from amongst them. When they tried to arrest him in John chapter 8, it says he slipped out from their midst. They don't even know how he got away. He just got away. He has carefully, meticulously negotiated his own survival until you get to John. John chapter 12. When you get to John chapter 12, it appears he is now out of options. They have tightened the net around him. He can, if he wants, pray, God, save me from this hour. But it is becoming more and more clear that God is not going to save him from this hour. So there is only one option left, isn't there? Father, glorify your name. I believe there is a moment in every person's life, at least one, that is undeserved, unfair, unwelcome, and unresolved. If you're like me, the moment trouble arises in your life, you try to avoid it. I don't like pain. When I can no longer avoid it, I start to negotiate with it. When I 
can no longer negotiate with it, I start calling out on God. God, I know full well who you are. I know how you operate. Isaiah said that the day is coming when the Lord will bear forth his holy arm. This is that day. Get busy. Isaiah 43 says that no matter what happens, I will be in the thick of it with you. I don't feel you. I don't see you. It is time for you to show up. And when you show up, I know it's going to happen. You see, in my heart, at least, maybe it's just me. It's always the theological problem. There's tension on the surface. But underneath you guys, what is eating me is that God is not acting like God. He is supposed to hear and know and touch and see and heal and understand. He is supposed to be present. And I don't feel any of those things. I believe in my life and in yours, there is that first moment after you have prayed and negotiated, when it first occurs to you, God is not going to change this situation. That is the midnight hour. Now you have a decision to make. The options are clear. The will of God is crystal clear. Even if you don't like it. You will have to make a decision or the decision will make itself. You will either say, Father, save me from this hour. Do what you always do. Act like I know you're supposed to act. Or you will say, Father, glorify your name. You ever wonder what happens when God's name is glorified? We always talk about worship, praise, like it were glorifying God. And some of it is and some of it isn't. So I looked it up. I looked in the scriptures. When is God glorified? Here's what I found. He is glorified when his purposes are accomplished. When things are on earth like they are in heaven, God is glorified. God is glorified when his nature is clearly revealed. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking into the very center of the nature of God. So Jesus would say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And God is glorified when his name is exalted. We just lift him up. David said, yours, O Lord, is the power and the glory. For you created all things and everything on heaven and earth is ruled by you alone. Please notice that these three things can happen whether or not God resolves the conflict. 
Sometimes God is glorified when he saves you from this hour, but there are moments when they can't both win. God must be glorified at great cost to your life. That is the defining moment, and I think some of you are in it today. Not all of you, but some of you are. I've said that um, my life was a series of defining moments, and I didn't know I was in them. If I've, I know I've told this story before, and so I apologize for repeating myself. It was one of those moments. Some years ago, there was a crisis in my life. And so I went to the elders of the church, and I asked them to anoint me with oil, because that's what James says you should do. I was reading the Bible like a cookbook. I figured if I followed the instructions, then that's what would happen. I would be changed. So the, oil, so the uh, elders gathered. They anointed me with oil, and I was not changed. After that, I sought the consultants. I sought the people with power, the people with understanding, the people I thought had favor, and I asked them to speak into it, and they did, and nothing changed. After that, I turned back to God, and I said, God, I am not asking you. I am begging you to take this away, for there are a whole list of promises in the Bible, and either they're true or they're not, and if they're true, then there is only one way for this to go. I'm asking you to act and change my situation. And he still didn't do it. That was when it occurred to me for the first time that God was not going to change this. I'd come to the hour and I didn't know it. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was so mad at God that I figured the only way to pay him back was to get out of ministry completely. It's not that I think I'm um, some great minister. I just knew that God loved me. And if I left him, maybe I could hurt him like he hurt me. So I quietly decided in my mind that I was going to leave the ministry and go up to northern part of Michigan. Almost nobody lives there. I remember going into the bedroom one day. On the other side of the bedroom, the door was over here. I sat on the dresser. Lori was standing at the door, and I broke the news. I said, I've given God every last chance to change my situation. He hasn't done it. It's judgment day, and I'm leaving. You can come. I hope you do. But I am gone. Have you met Lori? <laughs> she, is, she is the most... Um, Beautiful, 
joyful, funny, amicable personality you will ever meet until you start messing with her faith. I remember she was standing by the door and she spun around and she put her finger up like that and she said, you listen to me. You will not walk out on God and you will not walk out on me. You will stay in this. You will submit to his purposes. You will stand in his character. And you will thank him for being present in your problem. And I thought, <laughs> who are you? But I knew who she was. So I backed down about a week later at 2.30 in the morning while she and the kids slept and I couldn't. I went into the living room, looked out the window for the next hour and a half. I had at it. I said, God, I've prayed and I've asked you changes and you won't do it. I just want to know what is the difference between a God who does not listen, a God who does not act, a God who does not intervene, and no God at all. This is how you treat your friends. It's no wonder you don't have many. Really. As I stared out the window a little longer... I heard the Lord say, I could change this, you know. And I did. He said, but what if I decided to just come over in it with you and sit down? And I stay. So that what happens to me happens to you. And what happens to you happens to me at the same time. Something in my life changed that night. I didn't realize it was a defining moment, but it changed the rest of my life. You come to a place where you have a decision to make. Before I went to bed that night, I did exactly what Lori said I would do. <laughs> I said, I will surrender to your purposes, even if I don't like them. I will stand in your character. And I will rejoice that you are present with me in this trouble. And that is how it will be. Now, some of you are at that place this morning, not all of you. You see, this is why I say you cannot make a decision until there is a decision to make. But if it's true of you, then you are at a fork in the road, some of you. You know full well what the options are. There aren't five or six, there's two. The will of God should be crystal clear in your mind. 
you know what he wants you. Didn't say you liked it. I said, you know it. You have a decision to make. Will you say, Father, save me from this hour? Or do you say, Father, whatever you do to me, glorify your name. I will stand in your character. I will surrender to your purposes. And I will praise you for being present in my crisis.